We don't know, we can't stop Mother Nature. And we surely have waited too late to avert the realities of climate change in that sense. Climate change seems to be happening faster than, than, uh, than scientists had predicted. That doesn't mean we can, might as well get lax and say, oh, what the heck, might as well not do anything. Landslides, floods, the creation in my country is groaning. And when it is groaning, it affects the people. But we're going to have to be this one big collective community of human beings who will have to come together to help the least of them. But now this is true, and not only in with this, but when everything. The poor seem to pay the biggest price every single time. Sadly enough, we're, we're just beginning. I mean, that's the gloom and doom of it. Do I hope that we can actually do that? <laughs> uh, maybe, some days. Uh, there's always hope. Uh, some days I feel like, nope, it's, it's already, we're at Belshazzar's feast. It's too late, and <laughs> the writing's on the wall. But if we can have this optimism that we're stronger together than we are apart, I think we will be able to hold off some stuff and we'll also be able to survive some climate realities. I really believe that. Welcome back to the very last episode of season one. We've been together for a whole season now, and at this point, we get it. Climate change is serious, it's happening now, and its impacts permeate all of life. So as we continue this journey in our own communities, each with its own unique challenges, we have one final question. What does it look like to be stronger together than apart? And how do we get there? Welcome to Shifting Climates, where we attempt to rehumanize the conversation on climate change. I'm Michaela Mast. And I'm Harrison Horst. Thanks for joining us. This season, we've encountered conversations around faith and food, race, feminism, waste, and the list goes on. Climate change has introduced us to a huge network of people seeking a better life for their neighbors. And as a listener, you're a part of that network now too. So how do we bring others along with us as we continue on this journey? And how do we make sure we're headed in the right direction? Today, we're going to hear from some familiar voices who will guide us as we turn to our own communities. And we'll start with Veronica Kyle. My name is Veronica Kyle. I work for Faith in Place as the Chicago... If you'll remember, we met Veronica back in episode seven. She's the one who introduced us to the concept of environmental justice and told us some powerful stories of her own childhood. And the questions we just asked about bringing people along, those are the very questions that guide Veronica's work. Relationship building. You can't organize people. You can't build community if you don't have relationships, right? As community outreach director at Faith in Place in Chicago, her job is to bring faith communities into conversations on food and land use, energy, and climate change. People of faith move to the speed of church, <laughs> move to the political climate of the congregation, 
And we can't mandate that people do anything. Even if there's a biblical mandate or one from the Quran, from the Torah, it doesn't matter. People of faith will close their arms, look at you, close their lips, and let you say and preach everything you want to about climate change and go home and cut on every light, cut, you know, do what they've been doing unless you can start to make a connection that will personally impact their lives. Starting with the personal is central to Faith in Place's philosophy, not just because it's a good way to convince people to listen, but because it's an important part of building relationships. So to just walk in and go, let's just talk about climate change and 1.5 degrees hotter, forget it. Glaze over, what is she talking about? Who cares? Who is this woman? Not going to happen. But when we're able to make the connection between the impact of climate change with an environmental passion or interest of that faith community, we get further ahead. Faith in Place has a motto that goes, we get in where we fit in. You're interested in this? Well, so am I. They start by finding common ground. We've had direct conversations and movies and information and talks around the issue of climate change with, you know, their congregations where you just bring it square to them. That's what they want. That's what they want to hear. Um, and then we've had to bring climate change through the back or the side door, meaning we're here to grow food. That's what you want us to help you with a community garden. And then we say, did you ever think about the effect of climate change on, you know, growing food, healthy food? And people would go, yes or no, or no, not really. And then we go, let us tell you. <laughs> then we start a dialogue and information and education around the impact of climate change on healthy food. But for Veronica, it's important that she knows the community she's working with because the process looks different for each one. The same with the issue of asthma. Asthma is a really big issue in Chicago, particularly on the south side of Chicago and some west side communities, particularly on the south side with all the steel mills and the docks. So then we talk about the impact of climate change on clean air. There is always an entry point or a place to start because when it comes down to it, climate change impacts all of us. And one way of humanizing the conversation is helping people investigate the impact on their own communities. Why should we care if you live in an affluent community and you're worshiping in, you know, Winnetka or Glencoe or you're out in Schumburg, why should you care about what's happening in Inglewood or a Woodlawn? Because what happens to the least of them ultimately impacts everyone. So if flooding is happening in Chicago and the sewer systems are backing up and the infrastructure has to be done, so when Cook County has to raise taxes or the city has to raise, everybody is affected, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, so what, what, we, what we try to do is to show that there's this interconnection between caring for the earth and caring for your neighbor. Who really is your neighbor? It's really not just the person next door. <laughs> because ultimately, in Veronica's eyes, connecting the dots and realizing our interdependence is the work that needs to be done as we move forward. It's the only way we stand a chance. And when it comes to climate change, it might even be inevitable. This is the other thing I say about climate disasters. We've just seen them, right, you know, Houston, you name it, New Orleans, all of them. When the bow breaks, when the flood comes, 
when the fire comes in Oakland or wherever, everybody becomes a community, right? Do you ever hear somebody saying, okay, I'm just going to get this water away so it will not come into the black community, the white community? No, everyone, all of a sudden, we're neighbors. We're that community. We're those people that everybody's looking at on television. We got to see in Katrina what happened in the Ninth Ward. We got to see what segregation and poverty can do, what infrastructure when it's not in place can do. But ultimately, it had to bring the city together because it affected the whole economic reality of New Orleans. Oh, because we're coming together. When it's a drought, <laughs> nobody has any water food. We're coming together. When it's a flood, when those, those mansions are burning and right at the bottom of the hill, you know, are the little shacks, everybody's concerned. So I always say collaboration, let's collaborate while we can before we have to. So Veronica's advice, communicate well. Find common ground and collaborate in the areas where we have mutual interest. Let's come together and act as if we are in the middle of a climate disaster before true hardship strikes our communities and forces us to collaborate. We would be stronger for it. But what does that kind of community actually look like? Well, we've spent this whole season hearing stories that have pointed us back to the three empty chairs, an idea introduced to us by Krenigor in episode two. Before we approach any climate conversation, we need to be aware of the three empty chairs in the room. One for future generations, one for all non-human life, and one for the poor and marginalized in our world today. And I think what we're learning is that to be stronger together, we need to fill those chairs. Our next stop takes us back to episode five, to a small Mennonite summer camp in Michigan. And like Faith in Place, Camp Friedenswald is constantly trying to find new ways to engage its community. When it comes to bringing along future generations, this is a perfect place to look. So here we are at camp with the programs director. I'm Naomi Graber-Leary, and I, along with my husband Kevin, are the program directors here at Camp Friedenswald. The executive director. And I'm Jenna Lichty-Martin, and the executive director. And the sustainability and outdoor education director. Amy Hoosier, and my title is Sustainability and Outdoor Education Director. In episode five, we talked about how one of Friedenswald's goals is to connect kids with nature in order to learn from it and replace ourselves. But they're also spending a lot of time thinking about what it means to be a summer camp in a world impacted by climate change. And in 2017, they released a pretty cool document, their Sustainability and Resilience Plan. It wasn't a climate change plan. You know, it's a resilience and sustainability plan, and one of the reasons that it's not is that it's, it, climate change touches everything about our lives, but in order to have this be a plan that also helps the institution as a whole, it had to have kind of more of a holistic view, mm -hmm. and it had to integrate the complexities of dealing with climate change into Yes, and we have to remain financially sustainable, and yes, we have to still serve guests, and yet, and not everything's going to change overnight. And I feel like a big piece of climate change is like the fact that we have to bring so much new into all of these things that already exist. 
Designing sustainability plans is tough because every community is equipped to respond in different ways. And so Amy talks about the challenge of getting to know camp before trying to design something that works for them. And the plan itself, like if I had just sat down and written this plan with my <laughs> own like my own ideas and my own whims and wishes and my own passion for climate change and for camp to be carbon neutral and zero waste and everything, I would have written a plan that was totally not doable. You know, it wouldn't have been acceptable. And they would have been like, thanks, Amy, and like tossed it, you know, <laughs> on the shelf. Like, like Amy said, it's not just a climate change plan. This plan includes a triple bottom line focus, which means that the goals are divided into three sections, financial sustainability, environmental sustainability, and social sustainability. And it contains a number of ambitious goals, including decreasing their electricity use by 35%, reducing non-recyclable trash by 30%, and increasing the affordability and accessibility of camp. So what I was hoping to do was like strike this balance of like making real, significant changes at the same time helping the institution be stronger at the same time you know taking steps towards maybe the next plan we write is carbon neutral or the you know like it's a journey one of the reasons implementing a plan like this can be complicated is that camps are in many ways customer service agencies and sometimes that can lead to interesting conundrums we really have to balance meeting people where they are and serving them in the way that they would like to be served while also like staying true to like how we want to serve people and what we want to offer so for instance meals from our food service we would love to have more vegetarian meals but you know people are paying for a meal expect meat in the meal and so how how do we shape their expectations and the expectations that they bring shape what we are able to do in serving them and in, in meeting their needs Offering vegetarian meals is one specific way Camp Friedenswald is working to bring its campers into the conversation. And it doesn't stop at a menu change. The staff go out of their way to explain to campers why it's important. We served one vegetarian meal, but um, we prepped campers for it with a skit that kind of told them why and told a, it talked a little bit about ecological overshoot. We used five globes as an object lesson. These activities explained that we're drawing from resources that won't exist indefinitely, like fossil fuels, which is putting our annual resource budget in deficit. And right now, we're using about 1.7 Earth's worth of resources per year, almost double our planet's capacity. As an American, one of the most important factors for our personal ecological overshoot is meat consumption. So that's why Amy's using these globes and the skit to talk about vegetarianism. And it's, it's also a balance of, you know, there's value in being explicit about it and, right. like, bringing them along yeah, and, like, like, showing them the value. You're never going to get them to, like, ask for more. Like, you know, at our summer camp, we had some kids who were like, we could do another vegetarian. You know, like, <laughs> you're never going to get them excited about it if you don't bring them along. And getting kids excited about new things is exactly what camp is good at. The staff talked about creating a camp culture that, along with a skit, could change the initial gut reaction of... You're depriving us of meat to one of excitement. A highlight this summer for me was when a camper who had been to like his age group camp came back for family camp and not to me. He to his dad on the way in the door, he was saying, Yeah, and we're using 1.7 Earths. I and I was like, Did you remember that from camp? Like you're we and he's like, Yeah, I remembered that from my 
my week at camp or whatever. <laughs> anyway, I was just yeah. like tickled that he got the message and then was relaying it to his dad. <laughs> the staffers get a lot of joy out of being educators and learning along with their campers. But in the background, there's always this sense of urgency that when it comes to climate change, they aren't doing enough. But like you said, I just read an article last night in Grist about how we have 15 months to like get a peak carbon and then we got to go down or we're like facing over two degree, you know, increase. And so there's always this sense of urgency that's so hard to like rein in when you have to also deal with all of the other variables. (laughs) Especially when it involves people and communication Mm -hmm. and like relationship building is such a big part of that. Absolutely. One thing that I say a lot, especially when I work with the summer staff, because we have to, you know, train this group and create this group that's cohesive. We can go fast alone or far together. And the challenge with climate change is we need to go fast together. (laughs) Like I, it's hard. (laughs) In order, like in order to go far, you have to bring everybody along with you, and that takes time, and it takes communication, and it takes a lot of work and intentionality. But like, and you know, I'm not always the fastest in the organization to change. (laughs) You know, I like it's hard because we got to go fast together, and that's just not something we're really. Always well, equipped to do. And, and, and kind of where camp has been playing its largest role is really this important piece of like creating wonder and awe and yeah. this love of nature. But yeah. that's really one of those things that then you have to wait for this to build up. But then coming around to the fact that, well, sustainability is really about people. It's about everything, you know, it's about everything, but people, we're looking for our love of nature yeah. to then help us realize, oh, but this is about our own well-being and our own yeah. ability to thrive on this planet. It's not yeah. just about taking care of these other things that aren't us. Yeah. yeah. We've heard time and time again that strengthening community and building relationships is central to our fight against climate change. But like Naomi said, that's hard to reconcile with the urgency of the situation. Mark Dixon from episode 9 understands this tension as well. We're already hitting rocks along the side of the canal with our giant, you know, super cruiser, giant super tanker ship. And it's a very narrow canal and we have to steer it properly And it takes a while before the steering actually affects the direction of the ship. And so we've got some heavy turning to do right now. Mark is the environmental activist, public speaker, filmmaker, photographer we met in Pittsburgh. We talked with Mark about lessons he learned on a filmmaking road trip he took just after graduating from college. He likened the challenge of climate action to a ship heading toward land at full speed. And that's that's why I like to emphasize setting that compass. That if we just keep doing stuff, you know, if we just keep firing the propeller down there on the bottom of the ship, then we just push harder into the rocks. We need to move fast and together, but the gravity of the situation is why Mark is convinced that we have to take the time to make sure we're going in the right direction. So anytime an activist says, but Mark, I'm just not doing enough, I'll say, relax about doing enough. Do what's right. Spend your time 
sitting around doing nothing but figuring out what's the most important thing you can do. I'll just say, set your compass first before you worry about how fast you're walking. Because mm-hmm. you can walk fast right off a cliff. And in fact, that's literally what we're doing. And so I think it's better to turn around and walk the other direction before we start learning how to run again. Mm-hmm. And we will, I think, learn how to run. This idea of slowing down to set our compass brings another image to mind. I was talking to my friend Ben Wise about walkalators. You know, those flat treadmill things in airports that you can stand on with your bags or walk along and feel superpowered. Ben was suggesting to me that maybe that's how we should understand systems of injustice. That when it comes to things like racism or sexism or climate change, standing still isn't enough because the walkalator will just keep carrying us right along. If we truly want to mitigate the effects of our actions, we need to start walking in the other direction just to compensate for the undercurrents of society. I think this is what Mark is saying too. We need to make sure our compasses are set properly against the flow of the walkalator before we begin walking too fast. And for Mark, one of the ways to set our compasses is by learning from the non-human life around us, which brings us to empty chair number two. Nature has the, the book for us to look at for how to do things on this planet with what's here. I don't know if you've talked to or heard of Janine Benyus. Mark is talking about a woman he met on his environmental road trip. Janine Benyus, the co-founder of the Biomimicry Institute and author of a book called Biomimicry, Innovation Inspired by Nature. Uh, my interview with her was like talking with Mother Nature. <laughs> she was unflappable and, and she talks about the genius of life and these this library or university of geniuses archived in the DNA of all life on earth you know experimenting for billions of years with how to move resources and nutrients around with these micro forces and macro forces you know weak and strong nuclear forces and all these principles of physics applied to life propagating itself find the most ingenious ways of doing things more ingenious than I think human brains can conceive well. Nature has been experimenting for millions of years with how to do things well and efficiently, but as humans we've found our own way to do efficiency. Our version of cool is like heat, beat, and treat it. You heat things to super high temperatures, often using fossil fuels. You beat it using high pressures, often using fossil fuels to get to high pressures. And you treat it with very often toxic chemicals that don't have any purpose for life as it, as it exists today on Earth. And we think that's really cool and efficient and the way to make stuff. And like Amy and the others are trying to do at camp with the vegetarian pizza, Mark says we need to change our definition of cool, or at least look for it elsewhere. Camp is doing this work by reorienting the vision of their campers and pointing them toward the natural wonders around us exactly where Mark says we should be looking. But if you look to spiders or to nature or to bugs or insects or plants, and you start to understand how they move carbohydrates around, how they store energy, how they generate energy, how they move themselves around the planet, how they make structures, uh, how they collect water. How is spider silk made? In a spider (laughs) with bug guts. At room temperature, basically, <laughs> or at least if it's at higher than room temperature, it's done inside of a bug. <laughs> you know, I don't know exactly how it's made, but it's made very efficiently. 
which is very different from how we manufacture most things, including Kevlar. And often we can get a better result by paying attention to how nature does it than by doing it the way we think it ought to be done. And so anytime someone says, well, I just don't think that we can solve this climate problem, I say, well, have you opened the book of what genetics has to offer? What the treasure trove of biological life on Earth as told in a novel written in DNA, have you paid attention to that story? Because there are answers to our problems there that we can't even imagine the genius of them. And so don't you tell me that we can't solve climate change until you've actually looked in places that might have a chance of addressing it, like the Book of Life. But that's not the end of the story. If the natural world around us represents a Book of Life, says Mark, then we have tossed it onto the fire. According to a 2018 World Wildlife Fund report called the Living Planet Report, the abundance of animal populations on Earth has decreased by over 60% in the last 50 years, and freshwater species populations have dropped by over 80% in that same time frame. One commonly cited number is that between 30 and 40% of species could be extinct by 2050. Those are terrifyingly large numbers. The more that we degrade our ecosystem and lose these unique genetic treasure troves, these organisms, the more we lose the opportunity to learn from them. And I want to be careful not to say that their only purpose is to serve the propagation of humanity. But hopefully we can learn from the DNA embedded lessons of life for all time not to propagate ourselves so much as to learn how to live in harmony with those systems so that we can play according to the rules that nature tried to set for us, you know, 100 million years ago, that we have, with great hubris, chosen to ignore to our great peril. And if we don't learn those lessons that nature keeps trying to tell us are true, then we won't deserve to be around in perpetuity. We will then graciously as a species bow out and another species will get a chance to perhaps improve upon or just give it a totally different kind of try. And I've tried to detach myself from the outcome of, uh, will we make it? And instead find joy and love and my own humanity in the process of building towards something that I think is vital for us to attempt. We're going to return to Veronica Kyle once more. She's going to bring us home with one last story that shows us what it looks like to turn around and begin walking with determination in the other direction. It's a story of the way she has filled the empty chairs in her own community, a story of wonder, of inclusion, and of connection. I am like most African Americans my age, I'm in my 60s. This takes us back to her own story, which you may recognize from earlier this season. It began in Alabama. My family migrated to Chicago from the South, Anniston, Alabama. And then her family moved to the southeast of the country. So we were in Atlanta for a few years before my family migrated to Chicago. Now and then up to Ogil Gardens, outside of Chicago. Nature. We moved to Ogil Gardens, another environmental cesspool. We had incinerators literally on the ends of every row. There was incinerators. You knew you were, oh, and the landfills. I never knew what those mounds of little fire and smoke I would see coming out of. I thought it was a hill. 
some kind of, you know, sacred hill with fire coming out. It's a powerful story. If you haven't had a chance to hear it, check out episode 7. Hearing Veronica's story helped us understand a trend that is all too common in the U.S., the way that environmental degradation is used to perpetuate systems of racial and economic injustice. Several years ago, I just got so sick of people saying, oh, we just don't have diverse people in nature. Why aren't they in nature? And I'm like, one, did you invite them? Did you ask them? Do they feel safe? Are they welcome? And, um... Veronica shared a critique of the mainstream environmental movement, explaining that not all people are going to have interest in spending time in nature when it's been a place where hatred and racism and brutality have been harbored. And part of Veronica's work is trying to reclaim that narrative by finding new ways, redemptive ways, to connect to nature. And for her, the story of the monarch butterfly has been especially important. I learned about this migration of the monarch from Wichicon, Mexico, all the way to Nova Scotia, and I'm like, wait a minute, this is likened to me migrating from Anderson, Alabama, and African-American people. Tell me more about this monarch, and what are they looking for when they migrate? The same thing we were looking for, community and safety, and what do they need? Food, how do they, you know, procreate? Milkweed, okay, that's like my collard greens. I'm sorry, I'm unapologetically a southern black woman. I like my greens. I'm not apologetic. I like my sweet potatoes. We call them candy yams, right? Veronica was enamored by the similarities she saw between herself and the monarch butterfly. And one night at 3 in the morning, she found herself designing a Migration in Me program to implement a faith in place, inspired by the journey of the monarch. People need to tell their story before we start telling people what they need to go do in nature and how they need to take care and how they need to care about climate. What do people have to tell me, us, faith in place, about their experiences with nature? Pretty much like what you're having me do right now. And so that's part of what Veronica does to include everyone in the conversation. She hosts Story Circles, a setting that has released all sorts of emotions for the people she works with. Tears. I saw grown men cry. Bitter tears, sweet tears. People talked about running away. People talked about picking cotton. But they also talked about fishing with their grandfather. And, you know, frying the trout right there and, and eating it and, you know, shucking corn. But I also heard people talked about hiding in the cornfields. I talked, I talked to people who said, you know, they went and, you know, they stole the watermelon from the watermelon uh, patch and busted wide open and ate and then tried to go home and pretend they didn't have it. And, you know, Miss So-and-so caught them. But, you know, but it was after people were allowed to unpack their experiences, then we can start to educate people about how connected we are to something as delicate and as fragile as this monarch butterfly who knew? This, to me, is a breathtaking story. It's where restoration can truly start to take shape. So when I started to make those connections, I realized, you know what? We are so fragile. All of all living creatures are so fragile. We are so interdependent. In one blow, puff, nature can like wipe us all out. One fire, one flood, you know, one degree higher, you know, on the earth. And last I, last I knew, none of us getting out of here alive, right? So it didn't matter that, you know, I was on two, you know, two legs and they, the butterfly had the wings. It didn't matter. We all need the same thing. We need security and safety, a certain level of food and protection, 
What do we need to be away from prey? What is prey? Is that another insect? Is that climate change? Is that gun violence? Is that sexual assault? We all are fragile, and there's always this need to protect ourselves in our environment. So as Veronica helps to build resilient, sustainable communities, it's for the sake of her own family, for her neighborhood, for the world, and for the monarch butterfly. So that's kind of like my my story and what ultimately got me to start thinking about climate change in this way that it, I had to go out and talk about it in a way it made sense. We are, to me, the environmental village, you know, and it's going to take this whole village to keep talking, keep writing, keep teaching, keep advocating, keep connecting. Um, I think that's what gives me hope. I see it happening. I do. We are the environmental village. All of our interviews today have pointed us to this idea that we are stronger together than we are apart, that we must move fast together, that we are members and students of the community of creation. Our communities may not always have the answers, but they are the only places we're going to get enough support to make it through the coming climate crisis. And if we return once more to our three empty chairs, future generations, all non-human life, and the poor and marginalized in our world today, I think we're realizing that chair filling is not really a question of moral obligation, but it's actually an opportunity for us to learn things that, in Mark's words, we have chosen to ignore to our great peril. We're all stronger, we're all more resilient when the chairs are filled. And maybe orienting ourselves in that direction is a good place to start. As the season comes to a close, I realize that more than ever, what I desire is to be in a community that is willing to feel unsettled together, to recognize the missteps we take every day together, and to be bold together in exploring what it means to live in loving relationships. We've reached the end of the episode, but before we go, we want to take a step back and recognize our own environmental village. We couldn't have done this alone. It's impossible to give proper credit to the origins of all the ideas that I've shared today. It almost makes me tear up to think of the legacy, the shoulders that I'm standing on talking to you and the shoulders that you will provide to someone else in this, in this transmission of ideas that help us understand the world we live in and, and how to live in it well. And, in a fruitful, compassionate way. And I think understanding the lineage of ideas helps us understand how and where to potentially integrate brand new thought. And our hope was to kind of create a slide so that you wouldn't have to like walk that trail. You can kind of slide along it and laugh while you go and then end up at the bottom of the slide and then start walking fresh with fresh legs and, and, then, and then go from there. There are so many shoulders we stood on this season. And like Mark, we hope that this season has been like a slide for you that it's been easy to come along and join us, and that you are now ready to walk, compass in hand, with fresh legs and a light heart.
We'd like to give a huge shout out to our music team, who's been a great asset for us this season, and not to mention a ton of fun. Many thanks to Maria Yoder, Maya Garber, Perry Blosser, and Johnny Boy Bishop. And if you've made it this far, you probably know the rest. The Center for Sustainable Climate Solutions is our sponsor. Sarah Longnecker is our web designer and photographer. Luke Mullet writes our credits music. And you can find us at www.shiftingclimates.com. Stay tuned for information about season two. And once again, thanks for joining us this season. I'm Michaela Mast. And I'm Harrison Horst. See you on the flip side. Guys, we're on our last stretch of our first. Oh boy. <laughs> well, I don't even know what this is. The end. And that shows you have brain dead. <laughs> we're so done. We woke up at 5 30 this morning. Oh my god. Did oh my gosh, 5 30. I can't believe that our first trip is done, though. Yeah, I can't. Our first semester's trips are pretty much done. <laughs> Insane. That was what, 28 interviews? Um, and we should figure out how many states we were in. Ooh. I think we were okay. in like eight, seven. Tennessee, West Virginia, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, and Michigan. Wow. If we do some interviews in Virginia, then that's nine. Well, eight is counting. Okay. Good song. Okay. It's been good, folks. But we'll be back. See you on the flip side. See you on the flip side. <laughs>